the Truth Quest podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. <clears throat> our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. If you're joining us here for the first time, really glad to have you. If you have a question you want to ask about anything biblical, um, uh, prophecy, apologetics, um, nuances that you're facing in your life and decisions that you've got to make. I'd love to be able to look at it from a biblical perspective. Uh, all you've got to do is write the word question in front of your question and write, read, uh, write it out, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. Our first question today comes from one that was left uh, on our YouTube station, our YouTube channel, a comment that was left there, I think by Jari. Again, good question, uh, and that is, what um, if if someone? I'm, I'm going to summarize this question. It was rather lengthy. I'm going to summarize your question, Jari. Uh, if someone, and good to see you. By the way, Jari's here with us. Uh, so if if someone is attending uh, someplace where there is a some kind of false teaching going on, one that we would that we would definitely not be a part of, then and and God moves, God heal someone, God saves someone, God brings someone back to him. He moves on their heart in an act of genuine repentance. Does, does God doing those kind of things in a, in a meeting or a church with someone that would have an obvious false teaching? Let's just use an example. Let's just say there was someone from the prosperity movement. They're teaching, God wants you rich. God never wants you to be sick. Uh, that um, you have you have a lack of faith if you are sick, you have a lack of faith if you're not rich, um, that you're a king's kid, and as a king's kid, then uh, God wants you to have um, wants you to be rich, wants you to have money, wants you to always have prosperity. That's the general teaching that they're giving, and then someone goes to their church, and while they're there and they're teaching, all of a sudden they're convicted, they're hit with conviction that there are things in their lives that they need to get right. And then they, 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 they make a decision there that they're going to change these things and they're going to start living for God, which is the genuine sign of conviction, uh, of repentance, which is, I believe, one of the most powerful things that God can do to a person. Because when a person is hit with this kind of conviction, when it falls upon them and their life radically changes, they become an entirely new person. Whether they are a Christian who has a commitment to Christ, or whether they're a non-Christian that is first making their very first commitment to him at all. Uh, can that happen? Or what if it does happen there? Does that say anything about this false teacher or these false teachings that are taking place? What if the person is seeking God for something and God answers his prayer? What if what if he's prayed for for something there and that prayer is answered? It actually comes to pass. <clears throat> what if there's a miracle that's attached to it? God does something miraculous and there's a physical miracle that takes place. Does that in any way give legitimacy to the false teacher or to the teacher who has false teachings? Because I'm, I'm rather careful not to, uh, not to try to judge someone as to whether or not they are a genuine Christian. Uh, there are certain things that I will say, yeah, that's not, that's not Christianity. That's, that's, they're not a Christian. Uh, someone who's teaching Latter-day Saints stuff. You know, Jesus was the brother of Lucifer, and Jesus is not uh, progressed to Godhead, and Elohim was not the, the creator of the universe, but he progressed to Godhead. I would be willing to say that's not, those are false teachers. Um, but if a false teaching is obvious, and we don't know whether or not the person is genuinely saved, but a false teaching is obvious, and these miracles happen, does it lend legitimacy to their ministry? And the answer to that for me is no. And here's, here's why I think that's the case. Because I believe that God honors faith. And no matter where someone is sitting or where they're at, if they are honestly and genuinely coming to hear from God with sincerity, they just have sincerity to hear from God and they believe God's going to move. The Holy Spirit honors faith. And maybe he honored their faith and there was a miracle or a healing that took place there. Maybe he honored their faith and he brought conviction and repentance into their lives. And there was a genuine change that happened. Just because someone goes through a powerful spiritual experience at a, a meeting with someone doesn't mean that that person is right with God or is teaching what is right from God. And that has been 
scene over and over and over again where you see wonderful things happening, but then you find out later on that that person did not have their lives right with God because God honors faith and the faith of the individuals and people that come in. God's not going to punish the person that has faith and wants to hear from God because the person teaching it is teaching something that's false. Now, we have the responsibility to make sure we're not deceived, right? Jesus said, take heed that you are not deceived. The Bible tells us we can be self-deceived and sin is deceptive. And so we've got all these things working against us and we have to work hard that we would not be deceived. Nevertheless, um, God can move anywhere God wants to move and God can move uh, God can move in a, a Mormon church if someone is calling out upon the name of God and God could bring real genuine conviction and God's big, 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 big enough to bring them out of that Mormon church or wherever they're at. God's able to come in and do something because our God is a God that moves in miraculous ways. So, yeah, I think that, that genuine, bona fide miracles and, and miracles of salvation, people coming to Christ and, and getting their lives right with, with the Lord, those kind of miracles are um, happen among uh, false teachers because God honors the faith of an individual. And um, it is interesting, though, um, in some of these so-called faith healers, that some um, journalists have gone to try to document anything of any healings that they say they have and haven't been able to document any. So it doesn't seem like there's a lot of, of movement that goes on during these false teachings. There's a lot of claims, but once you try to go in and, and to um, document what was taking place, it's hard to document it. Now, that's not to say that miracles aren't documented. There's a two-volume series called Miracles, which documents miracles just goes into full documentation, goes in, interviews people, talks to doctors, looks at what happens, and sees that miracles are happening today, and it is extremely powerful. But uh, just because someone goes to a church or uh, ends up at a um, some kind of a, a revival or a crusade uh, from an individual that is a that is teaching something false doesn't mean God won't honor their faith, because God, you know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And God's a God that honors faith. And I don't think that God's afraid people will get confused. Oh, but that person got really serious about God at this crusade. I think sooner or later, God will reveal to them that they have to get out of there. And God did that with, with me when I was involved in a particular church that were teaching things that were wrong. And I kind of knew they were wrong when I was there, but it became evident that God wanted us out of there. And at the same time, he was working that in my heart. He was working that in the hearts of my friends as well. And God brought us out of that place into a, a, a more solid church. It was a Pentecostal church, but it was a solid church where they were sincerely following God, teaching and doing their very best to uh, follow the scriptures, at least as far as I could tell. All right. So thank you, Jerry, for that question. Uh, we have a question from Shannon. Shannon says, curious why God <clears throat> orchestrated the barley field meeting of Ruth and uh, so why God orchestra? I'm going to say I'm going to go on to say that you're saying Ruth and Boaz, um, Shannon. That's what I think <clears throat> we're looking at. So um, we did some changes here to try to see if we could get Facebook back online. Does not look like that happened, but anyway, um, we'll we'll keep working on that. Um, so why did God orchestrate the barley field meeting between Ruth and Boaz? Um, because God was at work, because God was wanting to bring these two together, because God wanted Boaz to be the redeemer that would bring Naomi back to the land and would bring Ruth to be the grandmother of, of, of David. So Boaz and Ruth were the parents of Jesse, who was the father of David. And so they're in that line. And so it was a move of God. There, there are certainly decisions that we make that are our own free will, and we get to decide based on our preferences. I do not believe in determinism. I don't believe in atheist determinism. I don't believe in Calvinistic determinism, which says that God determines everything before it happened. I believe that we have genuine free will, a genuine choice that really matters. And there are certain things that we get to choose that we just get to choose. Color of car that we drive. There's no reason to think that God would say, I want you to have the white one unless God's got a plan for that. And if God's got a plan for you having a white car that's going to do something for him in the future, then God can orchestrate you getting a white car. God's big enough to come in 
and override your decision and be able to do that. That's what I would call the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, remember sovereignty is to be a king, you're sovereign. So it means you get to do what you want. But a king doesn't always do what they want. And so to take the sovereign, sometimes a king makes decisions based on what's good for the people that he's caring for. So what makes us think that sovereignty is that God always does what he wants? God, of course, does what he wants, but what if he wants to allow you to have a free choice, to be able to make decisions, and that God is going to work in the midst of that world that's created where there is free choice? So God orchestrated this meeting between Ruth and Boaz and uh, for them to be able to get together, get married, and uh, to do the work that God wanted them to do. And we would have the story of the kinsman redeemer, which Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer, which is a picture of Christ becoming the kinsman redeemer for us. So Shannon, if you have more on this question here, you did get cut off, so I don't know all that you were going to ask. Uh, Feel free to ask it and we'll take a look at it. All right, and um, good to see you, Jari. Jari's here with us today. We answered um, one of your questions. Uh, I kind of um, summed it up a little bit because it was a little bit lengthy, but if false teaching is being taught, can God move uh, in that, that meeting if false teaching is being taught? And my basic answer is yes, because God honors faith doesn't mean he's honoring whatever that is. I don't think God's scared to make something look like, you know, somebody has approval because God has so many ways of working and revealing things. So, Jari says, if we don't have the Holy, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit, would we need to go to a place where Jesus is or God the Father in order to communicate with them? Or would they be inside of us like the Holy Spirit is? Uh, And yeah, Jari, again, I, yeah, I don't know. Um... God had planned and desired that the Holy Spirit would be given. And we were talking about God's sovereignty. One of the things that God sovereignly did was send the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was received up into heaven in the ascension. He ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit was given. And there was no way that those two things were not going to happen. No matter what men did, they were not going to stop the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit. So it was God's plan from the beginning. And in order for me to know what we would be doing if the Holy Spirit wasn't given, we might need to know what's in the mind of God. But I don't even think we need to go there because we know that this is what God brought about. Jesus talked about it beforehand because it was his purpose to bring the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, and this is probably what you're making a reference to, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, I will not send the Holy Spirit to you which is extremely powerful, that it's to our advantage that Jesus would leave because the Holy Spirit would come inside of each one of us and lead and guide each one of us, that we all have the Holy Spirit inside of us that has gifted us to be able to do the things that God called us to do is incredibly powerful. And um, I don't know the answer to your question, Jari, but I do know that I'm really glad that the Holy Spirit has been given to us that Jesus ascended is at the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit has been sent here to do the work that God's called us to do and uh, to help us to do the work that God's called us to do. So we have a question from Empress Kimberly. Kimberly, good to see you. Uh, uh, She says, is the belief that you must be baptized to be saved something that you should try to discuss or is it uh, should or should treat it as something you should discuss in order to not cause your brother to stumble. Okay, so let me try to figure out exactly what you're saying here, Kimberly. Um, Is the belief that you must be baptized to be saved something that you should try to discuss? All right, so let me just see if I've got this right, and you can let me know in a little while if I do or not, Kimberly. Um, You got a friend, and they believe that, that baptism at the point of baptism is where the miracle of salvation happens. And if you're not baptized, the miracle of salvation hasn't happened. Okay, that's what what baptismal regeneration believes. They believe that the moment you believe, you are not saved. But the miracle of salvation happens when they're baptized. Now, is this worth me discussing with, with someone? And I'm going to give you kind of a nuanced answer on this. If I barely know them, and I don't have a relationship with them, and I'm introduced to them, and they are part of a church that believes in baptismal regeneration. Uh, I'm not going to go out of my way 
to have an in-depth conversation with them, the first thing that I'm going to try to do is develop a relationship with them, like I would anyone else. Just try to see if, there, if there's going to be an opportunity to be able to share with anyone that's an error. error. Um, now, if I know someone and I'm, I'm, I have a relationship with them and they know me, now I don't have any problem talking to them about whether or not this idea that the miracle of salvation would happen at the moment that you're baptized. And if you're not baptized, you haven't had the miracle of salvation happen to you because I believe that that is not taught in Scripture. I'd be able to go to passages where Paul said, God didn't send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach the gospel. Other passages that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But the passage that they use in um, Acts chapter two, I think it's verse 38, where it says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. But that word for there can legitimately be translated because of. Therefore, repent and be baptized because of the remission of sins. That it doesn't necessarily mean for. There's another way to look at it. That's their big proof text where the passage says there's an anti-type which now saves us. Baptism doesn't necessarily mean water baptism. It means baptism into the body of Christ. And, bo- and, and the Holy Spirit is the one that does that miracle of work of baptizing us into the body of Christ. And I can go to places in the New Testament and show where the baptism of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ is mentioned other than their passage that says there's an anti-type that saves us. Baptism, which they would call water baptism, which I would say wouldn't be. So I would have plenty of information to go to and talk to them. Here's what I would need to do though, Kimberly. First of all, I would need to be gentle. What does the the Bible say in 2 Timothy 2, I think? The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, that you might be able to, that they, they might receive your correction. It's such a powerful passage because if I go in with a lot of arrogance and like, you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you how you're wrong, then, and we start arguing about it, we have, we have problems. But if I can be gentle, if I can come in and say, listen, I'm concerned about the belief of the church that you go to, and I want to talk bad about your church, but I'm concerned that they're connecting salvation to something that isn't truly salvation. Can we talk about this in the scriptures? So I would, I would try to be gentle to them, able to teach, hopefully correcting them that they might be able to escape that false doctrine. Because it is a false doctrine that add, adds works to salvation, that you have to go through this, this ritual in order to be saved rather than being a sign of what you just went through and that you died with Christ and now you are risen again with him and the spirit of God is inside of you. So uh, a little bit of a nuanced question, all right? Um, And cause a brother to stumble. This is such a serious discussion over baptismal regeneration that I'm not really concerned about stumbling a brother. I'm concerned about being effective. I I would rather somebody know that there's a legitimate case against what you're teaching when you're teaching baptismal regeneration and that what you've heard in your echo chamber is not necessarily true. And that's a good point for all of us to make sure that we get outside of our echo chamber. And we can always be reinforced by what we believe just by people who are saying the same thing that we believe. But to be able to get outside of it, to look at the arguments against it, not just so you can defend your position, but to ask yourself, is this genuinely true? I, I did this myself with the, the, what, the resurrection, which had the smaller part of that is the rapture. I went and I looked at the arguments in the scriptures against the idea of the rapture because I really wanted to know, look, am I just, I, I've been exposed to this, this teaching of the rapture since the time I was a first Christian, uh, first became a Christian at 14 years old. And is it possible that I've just heard this, heard this, heard this, that there's no way that I would respond in any other way? And so I began to look into the different ways, the arguments that people had for it. And that resulted in me putting a lot of videos on YouTube that were objections, uh, that were responding to the objections to the pre-trib rapture because I found them to not be compelling. Now, you, you may still think I have bias. 
You may still think I, I have my echo chamber. However, I just, I want to honestly know what the truth is and don't want to believe something that isn't true. And so you got to get outside of that echo chamber. You got to look at things. You're looking for the truth. You're wanting to walk in the truth and you want to look at things that are compelling. You want to go to people that you trust in the way that they can look at scripture and interpret the Bible. And, um, and, and so you don't get caught up in something that just isn't true. All right, so Shannon, question curious, why would God have orchestrated uh, the barley field middle of the night scene for Ruth to present her offer rather than for them to speak to him at his home? Okay, so yeah, that's quite a bit different than what I answered. Um, Thanks, um, Shannon, I appreciate that. So you're talking about what seems to be inappropriate to us, that Ruth was told by Naomi to go to where where Boaz was sleeping, lay down at his feet, and then uncover his feet. And then he woke up and, who are you? And I'm Ruth. And and he said, you know, um, you know, that he was that he wanted to be a redeemer, that she should go and he could take care of it. And so some have suggested that this is something toward, that this is something that was sexual. Uh, the scriptures never say that. And there's no reason for us to think that a statement like uncover his feet would be something that would be torrid or would be sexual in nature or that somehow um, they did something that was inappropriate. And, uh, and, and why would God orchestrate something that looked inappropriate? We don't know enough about their customs, I don't think, to understand exactly what that meant. But we do know what happened because the Bible tells us what happened. So I can see how you would be concerned about that, um, Sharon, right? But um, I think that this is something specific that was taking place. Someone letting someone know that I'm available and I'm interested in you, but it wasn't anything sexual. The Bible's pretty clear. um, And it's not afraid to say that, you know, Judah's walking down the street, sees Tamar dressed up like a prostitute, gives her a lamb so he can go into her. The Bible tells us straightforward. It doesn't, it doesn't play games. It doesn't, you know, it tells us the people that we might, that we might think are, are, that are biblical heroes. The Bible will tell us exactly what happened. If something happened there that was, was, was in any way sexual, I think the Bible would come out and say it directly. That's, that's my thinking. Okay. So, um, whatever their culture was, however, whatever statement that was for her to lay down and uncover his feet was a statement that he got. He understood. And that set them towards um, that being of being married. Um, long time ago, right? We're talking about Boaz and, and Ruth. So we're talking about 1100 years BC. So 30, 3100 years from where we are now. So the culture is so radically different that it's hard for us to really grasp all and understand it. And to be honest, I've never looked into if there is any cultural background for that particular event. That would be something interesting to do, uh, to start looking into it to see exactly what that meant. All right. So thank you, um, Sharon, for your question. That's a lot different than what I thought when you just wonder, why did God bring these two together? Yeah, I understand why you're asking that question. Okay, so we have a question. Um, So, um, keeping it real says, good to see you, keeping it real. Keeping it real says, what then is the purpose of angels since we now have the Holy Spirit? How would it look? What then is the purpose of angels since we have the Holy Spirit? How would it look? So, I'm not sure, keeping it real, how how would it look be what would be the purpose purpose of the angels. Maybe I'm coming into something here that I'm not getting. Let me go back here and look a little bit. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Can you rephrase your question? I'll keep it real so that I maybe understand a little bit. Again, maybe it's clear. Maybe it's just me. All right. But could you rephrase that a little bit and, um, and we can take a look at it. All right. So we have another question from Jari. Jari says, uh, follow up about the scenario of a person goes to Kenneth Copeland Church and tithes and is blessed and then stop tithing and thugs start and things start happening to them. Thugs start happening to them. Well, that's a really bad scenario, Jari, when they somebody stops tithing and thugs start happening to them. That's really bad. 
Um, I know you mean things. Um, so someone's going to Kenneth Copeland's church, okay? Obvious false teacher by means that he teaches false doctrine, okay? Um, obviously false prophet and by means of the prophecies he's given haven't come to pass. Obvious failure in a lot of things that he tries to do, like blowing away COVID, like growing the hair on his head, um, failures in being able to heal people, and still teaching the things that he teaches about money, uh, the amount of money that he has, just just several problems. Um, they tithe and they're blessed. Then they stop tithing and things start happening to them and they're no longer blessed. First of all, I think that would be living in somewhat of fear. Um could there be something supernatural happening behind the scenes? Could the enemy be coming in and trying to get someone who's now deciding to do what's right and not to be? Because if someone's giving to the ministry of Kenneth Copeland, they usually are giving because he's told them, "You're if you give, you're going to get back. And so now someone goes, I'm going to give, not so I can get back, but because I'm going to give. I want to give to the work of God. And that God, God has encouraged me to be generous because God said that I'll receive back again because that's the right teaching for give and it will be given back to you. That in the manner you give, it will be given back. That not to appeal to our greed, but to appeal to our generosity that I know I can give because God's going to take care of me and he's going to give back and I'm going to have more to be able to give. And I want to be a person who is a giver. So that's the right teaching of the false teaching that's there. Um, so what would I, what would I say to this person, uh, who came to me and said, I was tithing to Kenneth Copeland, all kinds of good things happens to me. And then I stopped tithing to him. And now bad things are happening to me. I, I, first of all, I might say, could be coincidence. It might just be coincidence. It could be demonic. We are, we, we know that the enemy is allowed to move and we know that he's full of doctrines of demons. And so if this, and, and there, there's no doubt that this teaching that if you give, you're going to get rich is demonic. The Bible says if anybody's teaching, this is 1 Timothy 6, if anybody's teaching godliness as a means of financial gain, get away from them. So we know it's demonic. So is, if there's a demonic realm behind it, and if, if this is demonic, then I would go to God and I would say, God, I'm faithful to you. And I'm going to do what you've called me to do. And I ask you in the name of Jesus to protect me because you said you would. And, and, I, and I believe that. Greater is he who's in me than he that's in the world. And Lord, I pray that you would protect my finances because I'm going to do what's right. I'm not going to give for a, to a false teaching, a false idea of how I could be rich. So that's how I would encourage someone. Again, Jari, I would be very gentle as I talk to them. Not I, I certainly want them to, to catch what I'm saying but I want to be gentle and loving and caring, again, able to teach when you're talking to someone. So you got to watch the way you go to someone because there can be a way that you can go to someone and you can be insulting. Uh, there, there can be a way where somebody does something that's just a, I mean, to be honest, it's a, it's, it, they're just a jerk to you. They come in there a jerk to you. Now you can go to that person and say, why are you such a jerk? Now you're probably picking a fight, right? Now you're going to argue at the very least, maybe get in a physical fight. But if you go to someone and say, why, why, why are you, you know, you're, you're demeaning to me and I'm just wondering why now you have you've, you've, um, you put a question in such a way that they're able to respond to it and, and probably will respond positively. If you say to somebody, you're a jerk, why you treat me like a jerk? Now you're just going to get back. But if you say, look, it, it seems to me like you're being demeaning towards me when you said this, and you said that, I don't think it's the right thing to do. Now you're giving them an opportunity to go, oh, well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I was, you know, whatever they might say. I was just joking or, or you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't realize it hurt you, you know? You're, you, there's, so there's ways you can address things. So this person who attended uh, Kenneth Copeland's church, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about their faith. I'm concerned about their salvation and why they would be giving in the first place to be able to get back. So I would be trying to address all of those things when I talk to them so that they would come away with a genuine action of faith towards God. That would be my goal. 
a genuine action of faith towards God rather than one to give to get. That's the, the, the most pathetic reason that you can give. I heard a preacher say when I was 18 years old, um, motive doesn't matter when you give as long as you give. It was during his own fundraiser, by the way. And at 18 years old, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure the 18-year-old Robert Furrow was really wise, but the 18-year-old Robert Furrow knew that was wrong. Uh, in, in my mind, when I heard that, I said, all that matters is your motives. That's what matters. If you don't have the right motives, don't give. It's the exact opposite of what he said. All right. So, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate that. Jari, that, that follow-up uh, to your question. I th- by the way, Jari, I think that's such a good thought. That's why I, I chose this to open up this Q&A with. Because we see so many that go down paths that we would go, that's not sound biblical teaching. And I see a move of God towards sound biblical teaching today. And I think it's so incredibly powerful. So as we encounter people that are not in sound biblical teaching, Empress Kimberly's question as well about baptismal regeneration, as we're encountering people who are not in it, how do we talk to them in such a way that we might be able to win them over to being committed to the truth instead of just being offended and defending the person uh, that they that they got that from. Okay, so thank you very much, Jari, for your question. I really appreciate it. I think it's a great question. I think it's one we need uh, to address that topic more than even we did today. All right, so we have a question from Just and True. So Just and True, good to see you. Good to have you here with us. Uh, is it profitable to understand the writings and cultures of the Bible to read extra biblical texts that are directly quoted by the writers of the Bible? Mahalo. You in Hawaii? Uh, Probably. Mahalo. Um, Yes, I think it would be beneficial, profitable, as as your word says. So, we know that there are few extra-biblical writings that were mentioned in the Bible that are not accepted as Scripture. The biggest one we would think of would be Enoch. So, would it be profitable for us to read the book of Enoch? Sure, as any other book, just like you might read, let's say you want to go back and read the writings of the historians that mention the Bible, especially the writings that mention them, Tatticus, Josephus, Philo, to name a few. It's profitable to go and read them. You would never read them as scripture. You're going to read them as historians. You're going to see how they took things in their historical context and take a look at it. And it can be profitable to be able to do that. Now, especially the book of Enoch helps us to understand what the first century mindset, and I think the book of Enoch was written a couple of, ah, I'm not sure exactly the exact date of the book of Enoch, before the New Testament. So we could get an idea of what the first century mindset is thinking when we hear statements that are made. And here's where New Testament scholars can help us out tremendously because they're familiar with these kind of things. And we can look into what they would have to say about what the New Testament believed about Enoch and some of the writings that were there. Um, but I do think it's profitable for us to, to, to read those. Um, I would even think, hey, if, you, if, if you're the person, now, I got so much I want to read and do. I, I have no interest right now in reading the book of Enoch. Um, I, am, I've, I, I know the overview of the book. I know the layout of the chapters. <clears throat> I know what's discussed but I didn't get that by reading it. I got that by doing research on what the book of Enoch is all about. Um, I don't want to read it. I just, again, I don't have time. I have other priorities of things I want to do. But if you're of the mindset that does a lot of reading and you want to read it and get an understanding of it, then I would encourage you to do it, Justin True. I think that that would be great. You know the, the Word of God. You know the Scriptures. You've got the Spirit of God inside of you. So you're able to determine. There, there's nothing that I would be afraid of with you reading an extra biblical book, even something like the Gnostic writings. Nothing, I, I wouldn't be afraid of that at all. I would encourage you uh, to do that. It's not anything that I think that you would, would get on you as you were reading it. All right, so mahalo. All right, Justin True, thank you for joining us. Appreciate that. And let's see, find ourselves another question here. We have a question from Rod. Rod, good to see you. Um, Rod says, this is a good question. Was Adam filled with the Holy Spirit before the fall? 
I'm going to have to hit you with the I don't know rod. Um, hmm. I'm just taking time to think if there's anything biblically that would help us with Adam being filled with the Holy Spirit before the fall. I just talk it through here a little bit. I can certainly see how he would be. I mean, God's desire was for us to be filled with the Spirit, and I think we'll do that throughout eternity. The Spirit will fill us throughout eternity, and our bodies, incorruptible and immortal, I think we'll still have the Holy Spirit. And I'm not sure why I think that, by the way, as I think about that now, but I think that that's true. And so, why wouldn't Adam have the Holy Spirit? But then again, the Bible doesn't tell us that he had the Holy Spirit. And maybe there was another manifestation of the Spirit when Adam was created that wasn't the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which we have today. The Holy Spirit definitely indwelled people in the Old Testament, but only a handful or a few. So, um, yeah, a good question. I'm not sure if there is an answer to that, but if you do find it, Rod, would you let me know? I do appreciate it. Always enjoy your questions, by the way. Uh, we have a question from Albert about Deuteronomy. Oh, no. All right. So, Deuteronomy, um, Albert says, Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. It refers to familiar spirits. Do you believe these demons are assigned to believers as are angels, which gives them the this intimate knowledge of our lives. Thank you. Well, let's go there and take a look at this passage and see if there's anything in the passage that might make us think, Albert, that they would have be assigned to individuals. Um, Satan who harassed harassed Job, right? And um, Saul had a, a spirit that harassed him which seems to be a kind of an assigned spirit. Maybe, maybe one of the only, you know, if that spirit harassed him or possessed him, maybe with the only possession we find in the Old Testament, we don't see any exorcism in the Old Testament except that David soothed Saul, if Saul indeed had the Holy had a demonic spirit inside of him. Uh, so let's go to uh, Deuteronomy 18, and we'll go to verse 9. Now that you've got me thinking out loud again, um, verse 9, so we'll pick it up. Uh, it, it's subtitled here, Avoid Wicked Customs. All right, Albert, let's take a look. Avoid Wicked Customs. When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn the following abominations of the nations. <clears throat> there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through fire or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to, to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you will dispossess, uh, listen to soothsayers and diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. All right, so great passage, by the way, and if anyone is involved in astrology or any kind of New Age practice that would look like any of those things, that's a great passage to tell us to stay away from those things as far away as we can. Um, the reference to familiar spirits. Um, let me get back there and look at that again. Is it is it a different um, is it a different version, Albert, that talks about familiar spirits? I, did I just miss it? Did I just go over it without uh, getting it? Let me just look here and see if I can find it. Pass through fire, witchcraft, soothsaying, interpret sorcerers, conjure spells, or a medium or a spiritist. Maybe that's where it says familiar spirits in another one. All right. So I'm not sure. And let me just see, make sure. And uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure where where the reference to familiar spirit is there. It might be in the King James. Um, do you believe the demons are assigned to believers? Uh, no. Well, it's really funny when you start to answer something, and you're trying to answer it. You're trying to answer it truthfully, and not just your opinion. So if I give you the opinion off the top of my head, 
I'm going to say no. But then you start to think, well, there were people who were demon-possessed and a spirit took advantage of them. Was he assigned to go take advantage of them? Doesn't seem like it, but who knows? Maybe there is some kind of order. Jesus talked about the importance of there being some kind of an order within the demonic realm that if an angel, if, if Satan fights against Satan, then he's a house divided. So is there these rankings and orders and can Satan assign demons to be attached to each one of us? And I'm going to give you, sorry, Albert, but I'm going to give you the dreaded maybe there. Um, I just don't think we have enough information. But what I can tell you to give you a, a strong feeling as a Christian is that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. If anyone is in Christ, he doesn't sin, which means that we've made a decision that we're not going to sin. doesn't mean we never sin. The same book says, if uh, if anybody says they have no sin, they, they, um, they're lying. The truth isn't in them. So we know that, that everybody sins. But when it says, if Christ is in you, you don't sin, that means you want to do what God's called you to do. And that you're walking in righteousness towards God. You're practicing righteousness. And the evil one cannot touch you. The Bible also says not to give place to the enemy. So there are things that you can do to give place to the enemy. Um, the Bible also says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So maybe you're not resisting him and he's not fleeing from you. I do believe there are protections as a Christian, like Job, Satan had to have permission, but I also believe that we need to be careful that we don't give place to the devil and that we we resist him so that he does flee from us. Um, so whether or not they're assigned, I'm just going to have to come with an I don't know, thinking through that as much as I can. All right? I appreciate that. All right, so we have another question from Justin True. Justin True, I'm going to go ahead and take this question. We usually do one until we kind of get through it and come back to them. Um, I'm going to go ahead and take your question here um, as a second question today. Um, What are your best scriptures to confront the Catholic's Orthodox belief on a priest forgiving sins? So, um, the passage that's used for a priest being able to forgive sins is that whatever you bind on earth will be bound on in heaven and whatever you loose on earth would be loosed on heaven. That's spoken to the apostles. The, the priesthood was handed down, according to the Catholic Church, to the apostles through, or, or to the priests through the apostles. So now you've got the priesthood, which is able to forgive sins. And um, there's a passage that says, whatever you forgive will be forgiven. And I really wish I knew where that was at. Um, I want to take some time to, um, to look at this before I answer this completely, because I want to be able to take a look at the passage that they use, and I don't know where that reference is at. Uh, maybe, Justin True, you can look it up and maybe repost it. Maybe we'll have time. we got another 18 minutes or so. Maybe we'll have time to be able to um, to look at this question. But I'd really like the passage where it says, if you bind anything on earth, it will be bound in heaven. If you forgive any sins, it will be forgiven in heaven. I want to take a look at that passage that they use. And I think there's something there that we're able to see. Um, and we do know we do know that people have their, that how people get their sins forgiven. So that I can declare someone to have forgiven sins when they make a commitment to Christ and begin to live for him. Now that's assuming that they gave their lives to Jesus, but I can do that, and 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 I do want to talk. I do want to answer this question, and if we can't get back to it, um, Justin True, we'll cover it in another Q and A. I'll use it as a first question in a Q and A, so that we're able to deal with it right up front. All right. So let's go to Kimberly first. Kimberly has a follow up. She says, "Thank you, Pastor. I I I was at study, and I believe teaches this." I was at a study that I believe teaches this, and I felt a check in my spirit to be quiet. Seems to happen a lot. And later watched, wondered if I was just a coward. Thank you. Um, no, Kimberly, I, first of all, if you feel a check in your spirit, then you, you, you've got to do what you're feeling the Spirit's giving you a check to do. Let's just say the Spirit's not checking you that way. But living by faith means that you believe the Spirit gave you a check, so you're going to do what the Holy Spirit's leading you to do. That's living by faith. The only time that wouldn't 
wouldn't matter is if you had a check in your spirit to be hateful to someone, right? Or to some sin, right? To be hateful to someone, to insult someone. I just felt a check in the spirit to insult someone. So that's never going to happen, right? But if you feel a check in the spirit not to share something, then it's probably just time to be quiet and to trust that that check is correct. Now, let's just say the check wasn't from God, but you still thought it was. So by faith, you are living by faith and God's pleased with your faith. That in what you believe that you heard from God, you're, you're living with. Um, and I'm going to put myself in your position now. If I read a Bible study and I'm, I'm, I'm not there as Pastor Robert Furrow, I'm just there at a Bible study and they start to teach baptismal regeneration. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think if I'm not familiar with all of the arguments, how much do I want to really bring it up? Um, yeah, I'm familiar enough with the arguments where I probably would start to ask some questions that would maybe kind of draw this out a little bit. But you're probably at a Bible study from a church that teaches baptismal regeneration, and it's probably not going to be really effective to deal with it there, which is probably why the Holy Spirit prompted you. I can understand that, Kimberly. So thank you very much. I appreciate you giving that extra information. So, um... Ah, Alex, your take on uh, the Asbury Revival. Interesting. I'm going to be talking about revival tonight. I'm going to be talking about the last revival. Um, by the way, Keith, we're changing the title of the message from the greatest revival to the last revival. All you'll need to do is change the um, thumbnail on YouTube, by the way. You don't need to go back and change it everywhere else. Um, but it will be the last revival that we're going to be looking at today, which takes place during the tribulation period where this great multitude gets saved out of every tongue, tribe, and nation <coughs> that are taken out of the tribulation period, and that's revival. So we will be talking about revival tonight, what it is and what God does. Um, so this Asbury revival is interesting. So it started a week ago on Wednesday. Uh, the kids went into a chapel meeting. I'm giving you as far as I understand, by the way. I'm by no means know everything that happened there, <clears throat> but they go in and um, when it's done, they continue on and they continue singing and praising and kids come in and all of a sudden there's this interest and, and as far as I understand it, um, the kids were invited at some point to give testimonies and they started giving their testimonies, which is always something very powerful, by the way. The Bible says they overcame him by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the lamb. These are the saints that are in the tribulation period, <coughs> excuse me, these are the saints that are in the tribulation period that end up being in heaven as part of this revival and the test, they start telling testimonies in this Asbury revival and a guy repents openly and then goes to the altar and other people join him at the altar and start repenting. And more and more do this. And now it's turned into this continual service of testimonies and repentance and songs and no major leaders being there, no well-known people there, which I hope they don't do. I hope they don't get leaders of different organizations to start speaking because that can generate something that isn't from God. I hope this continues to be student-led. I hope these guys are there are wise enough to do that. And they might be because there was another revival in 1970 at the exact same place. And it, it ended up being the East Coast version of the Jesus movement. So the Jesus movement started in the 60s, late 60s, 68, 69, in Southern California. Calvary Chapel played a key role in that. And God began to move on, on hippies. They started coming to Christ and, and, and it's called the Jesus movement. They got saved. God began to work inside of them. They had been involved in the all that was the drug and sex culture of the 60s, which they were immersed in all of that. And God began to draw them out of there. And, and I talked earlier about God doing something genuine in the heart that is a genuine point of repentance where all of a sudden people want to repent and get things right with God. Revivals, as you, as you study them throughout history, have that thing in common. There's a lot of differences. There was a businessman's prayer revival in 1857. 
by the way, and I'll be talking about this tonight more, but just to give you a little bit of background on that, there was the Dred Scott decision in March of, 50, of 1857 that said in their terms, an African-American is cannot be a U.S. citizen, therefore does not have right to a federal court. That divided churches, it divided our land, it ended up with a civil war in the 60s, this was 1857. Six months later in September of 1857, a guy by the name of Jeremiah Lanford felt moved by God to have a prayer meeting with businessmen. The first prayer meeting had no, no one to start and then a handful of people to end and then it just spread and revival broke out and people started having a genuine desire to get things right with God. Um, a lot of times when you study revival, they'll talk about a desire for righteousness, a desire to get sin out of their lives. And that's all true. But it's just something that God does inside of an individual and does it inside of a bunch of individuals that are all around where they no longer want things that aren't right in their lives. They want to get rid of things that are wrong and they want to do what's right for God. And so they repent. And that repentance is powerful and it happens to an individual and then another individual, another individual, another individual. So there's a number of people that end up giving their lives to Christ. You can go all the way back to Jonathan Edwards and the revival that happened there. Um, you go back to Jeremiah Langford, who I was just, just talking about. And our nation, our nation was at a time that was even more divided than it is now. And God stepped in. We could talk about our nation being divided during the 60s over the Vietnam War and the Holy Spirit stepped in. We see hatred today for political parties. We see partisanism, part, partis, partisanism um, just at, 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 all, at heights. We see people hating people because they're a part of a different group. And could the Holy Spirit be, be stepping in in Asbury? Uh, I hope so. As I said, there was a revival there in the in, in, in 1970, that was part of the Jesus movement culture, but this was happening among Christian kids. This is happening among much more clean cut kids than what was happening in the Jesus movement over in Southern California. All right, those guys were full on hippies, but these guys in, in Asbury in, in, in um, 1970 were more clean cut kids that were in a Christian college, but God began to do something that brought revival and it was very powerful. Um, I remember this, a story of and this is in Keith Green's biography. I forget the name of it now. I read it, I don't know, 30 years ago. But there's an account there of him going to Oral Roberts University of playing a concert, but asking kids to get up and repent openly. And kids began to get up and repent openly. And they were repenting of homosexuality and of sexual sin and and the administration shut it down. And, and I wondered when I read that, if the administration had not stepped in because they were worried about what Oral Roberts University looked like, could God have started a great revival? If we're just willing to step back and go, this isn't about an organization and what an organization looks like. It's about people, kids getting their lives right with God because all of a sudden they don't want to have that in their lives and they're willing to stand up and confess something that's so shameful so openly and, and have that desire to, to, to be drawn to God. This is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of God. It's a miraculous work of God that this happens. And my hope is it's happening in Asbury today. My hope is this is, this is the beginning of a revival. Time will tell. Is this something that is being prompted on by, you know, Facebook, social media, YouTube? I, I, maybe. People are traveling there now from all around the United States. I expect this thing to get more, much more of a fever pitch. Uh, I'm hoping that as this thing grows, which it's going to, I'm hoping that they don't get famous people to start speaking. I'm hoping that they, they, they leave it as a student-run thing. Let the students do what they're doing and let's see what God's doing inside of it. I have a hope for revival. I would love to see a revival before I'm done ministering, which I'm hoping for another 20 years. So we'll see. But I, I would love to see that before the end. So um, thank you for asking that question, Alex. I think it's, uh, I think it's a great question. I'm excited about what's happening. 
Um, I think it's a possibility there's a genuine revival on its way. It has a beginning that looks very much like what other revivals had, which again is God making a change in one individual for a right relationship with God. The Bible says that that times of refreshing come from the presence of God. And when we as Christians have things in our lives, harbored sins and things that we haven't repented from and we kind of are hiding it a little, when we have those things, it keeps the presence of God from being fully there. I'm not saying you're not a genuine Christian. I'm just saying it hinders us. And when we can get rid of that, there's something very powerful that happens. And when that happens, it's not this arrogant, you know, I'm right with Jesus and so I'm better than you. It's, there's, there's the fruit of humility, the, the fruit of the Spirit that's there. And it becomes something that's seen, very clearly seen. So thank you very much, uh, Alex, for asking that question. I'm, I'm hoping it will be something that is very powerful. And even if not, if it's not, I'm hoping we can learn something about revival in our own lives. Because revival won't take place until one person is revived. <laughs> until one person goes, I'm getting this out of my life. That's revival. And then, but it spreads to being a revival when a whole bunch of people do the same thing. All right? Uh, so, I'm going on here a little bit. Um, it looks like I answered that question. Yeah, Shannon, I'm I yeah, I'm not sure. I'm gonna go up. I I'll look more into this, okay? So yeah, Shannon talks about um, Rahab being the mother of <clears throat> of Boaz's mother was Rahab, which is a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabitess. Her roots resulted in incest, and through their lineage, Jesus was eventually born. So interesting. Yeah, no, that is extremely interesting that there's all that mess in the lineage of Jesus. Uh, Charles Swindoll taught a teaching called knots, as in knots on wood, knots in the family tree, where he went back through Matthew and looked at all of these people that shouldn't be in the family tree. It's incredibly interesting. So, yeah, thank you, Shannon, for, for bringing that up. It shows us that Jesus isn't afraid to get close to us who are dirty, doesn't it? That's what it shows me. And that God's not afraid to completely redeem someone, no matter what a mess their background is no matter what a mess they are. So um, I'm going to go ahead and bring in Alex. Alex has a follow-up to his question. The enemy is capable of signs, magic, and sorcery. I think so. The enemy probably also has a hand in anyone who would be considered a thug. Yeah, here's he's the father of lies, and that manipulation would be easy for him. So <clears throat> he's referring to the question by Jari about the thugs being in the life of an individual. Um, and I, I would agree. I, and I had said that. It was, couldn't this be something satanic? Since, you know, doctrines of demons, I would consider what Kenneth Copeland teaches to be a doctrine of demons. So I appreciate that. Uh, we are getting fairly close to the end here. Let me see if I have another question. Um, just a couple of things, maybe just a couple of announcements uh, to be able to give you guys. Uh, we have our... Pastors and Leadership Conference, Calvary Chapel, Tucson, is privileged for the last 20 years, 20 plus, to bring the Southwest, Calvary Chapel Southwest Pastors and Leadership Conference to, to host that. And this year, it is an apologetics conference, and we have Greg Kokel, who wrote the book Tactics. We have um, Frank Turek, who's going to be there with us as well, who wrote the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Um, we have Natasha Crane, and I, I've Forgive me, I forgot the name of her book that's going to be there. Um, we've got um, Leighton Flowers, uh, who um, runs a, um, a YouTube channel called Soteriology 101. And he's going to be talking some about Calvinism and how to handle Calvinism when it comes into the church. Um, and if you are interested in attending that, I believe it is free online. There, there may be something that you have to get a code to be able to see it. Um, but it's going to be the first weekend in March, so we're just a few weeks away from that. It's going to be a great conference, and I'm not saying that because we're hosting it. I think it's really going to be a good conference. I think that you'll really be blessed. It is on apologetics and defending your faith, and I'm really excited 
um, about that. All right. Also tonight, the last revival. That's the passage we're looking at in uh, in Revelation chapter seven. We'll be looking at nine to the end of the chapter there, as we see. Um, all these people taken out of the Great Tribulation period and the last revival. And we'll be talking more about revival. If you're interested, as we were talking about some of those things, I'll be sharing them again. Um, So, all right, Justin True. Um, I'm struggling with lust and I fall into sin almost daily. What scriptures would you suggest to help me? Um, Again, this may be a question that this is our third question today. We shouldn't be taking another question from you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I kind of feel like this is somewhat hypothetical. I might be, I might be wrong about that, Justin True. Maybe it's honest and you're just, you know, saying this. Um, if you really want to battle against, it's such a, it's such a behavioral issues take something grabbing a hold of us to get us out of that behavioral issue. Especially if as a Christian, you've been behaving that way. Now, a lot of people want to call these addictions, and whether you call them addictions or I like to call them behavioral issues because behavioral issues are hard to change. You get into a rut and you're, you're doing something, and so they're hard and they're difficult to change. So there would be a few scriptures that I would suggest. As I said, I, I would like to come back and do this at the beginning of a study again. That's two good suggestions you've given for that because um, I think that this would be great to talk about from the very beginning. I think a lot of people would be interested in hearing the answer. But the Bible says, whatever things are just, whatever true, whatever are honest, think on these things. So you would make a genuine effort to think on scriptural, true, godly things throughout your, you know you're in a battle, you know you wanna make a change. Let's just, let's say the Holy Spirit is convicting you and you're bringing a confession here to this place, and and now you're wanting to know what to do, the Holy Spirit, this is going to be a serious issue for you. I might even do something like fast and pray, where you you say, I'm fasting for whatever whatever you want to do, a, a day, two days, but it's a radical enough change to make this thing serious. So you've got something that you want to get out of your life, instead of just going, okay, I'm going to get rid of it now. You actually seek God, you fast, you pray, you search for him. You set your mind on the things that are above rather than on the earth because it's a, it's a, it's a thing of the mind. You know there's a drive, you know there's a behavior, you know this is gonna be a battle to get rid of. Uh, you walk in the spirit deliberately so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. You delight in the Lord so that you your desires are desires that God can give you. And so I can go over all of these things I'm a couple minutes late, Um, but let me come back just and true and deal with this issue at the beginning, maybe even the beginning of the next one because it's such a powerful issue. But I would say do something that marks a true beginning to your battle of this thing. Fasting would be a perfect one where you say, starting now, I'm not eating anything for dinner and I'm going to pray and I'm going to seek God and I'm going to ask him to deliver me from this. I'm going to ask him to give me the power to be able to do it. And then I would make sure that I'm doing everything the Bible tells me to do in order to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And so that when you're tempted, and I'm just going to take a couple more minutes here with this, all right? That's not true because I, I, I feel like it's important. When you are tempted, the way that you've been responding to that temptation is to give into it. But when you are saved and the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, you have a different relationship with sin and there is an out, right? That's what the Bible says. With every temptation, there is provided a way of escape. So you've got to start looking for that way of escape. Jesus was tempted in every way we are tempted, yet without sin. So how was Jesus tempted by that and yet without sin? And we know Romans 6 tells us we are no longer slaves to sin and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. So our relationship to sin has been changed to where I was a slave to it before I became to, came to Christ and I am no longer a slave to it now. So I would say make this something serious, something that you know is, is outright needs to be handled and taken care of. Get other people involved with it as you can. Um, talk to someone that you, that you need to talk to that can be an accountability for you, um, a pastor that you can be honest with about the struggle uh, and to, to be able to deal with it. But it's got to be something that you, you deal with in a serious manner. 
All right, heavy question for us to end on. Um, and I will, as I said, I wanna deal with this at the beginning <clears throat> of a Q&A because it's such an important topic and study that I think that a lot of people would be ministered to by it. So we'll, we'll get something out there along those lines. Thank you, Justin True, for your question. I really do appreciate that. And um, if, if that really was a confession from you and not a hypothetical uh, question being thrown at me, um, well, I'm praying for you. Stand, stand just and true and fight against that battle and um, do fast. Just, I'm just giving you some counsel now. This begin, mark the beginning of the battle. So you're not doing starting it over again and starting it over again. You're marking the beginning of the battle and it's something serious and you're gonna get things right with God now. That's your desire. Remember, that's revival, right? That's revival in an individual. And when it breaks out in a bunch of individuals, it becomes a revival. All right, so appreciate us being able to spend some time together here today uh, talking about these things. Hope you guys um, have been ministered to as we, to the best of our ability, seek to search the scriptures to find what the truth of God's word says. Uh, we have a, a message, we have a service in about an hour. Love to have you join us. We'll be having a time of praise and worship in the beginning, uh, and then <clears throat> we will pour into the book of Revelation, line by line, verse by verse, the second half of chapter seven. Uh, last time we were in Revelation, we talked about the, uh, na the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. Now we're looking at the last revival, and um, I'm really looking forward to being that, covering that with you. Good to see you guys, all right? Love you, stay close to Jesus. Um, walk right with him. Let God do a move inside of your life that you really want to walk right with him. Um, we will experience a revival if indeed there is a revival inside of us. And may that be the case. All right, I'm out. We'll see you guys, um, hopefully, uh, Lord willing, on Saturday. All right, planning on having a Q&A on Saturday. Lord willing, we'll see you then. God bless you guys.